Let's uh, just pray for a moment as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The early mobile phones were large, heavy, and outrageously expensive, but they were also very prestigious. I don't know if any of you remember them. Compared to that slim gadget that you may well be carrying in your pocket, the early mobile phones were like a large brick. If someone used one today, people would point and stare and laugh. It's about this big, holding it up like this. But it's hard to explain the glamour of those early phones. It was like magic. I remember seeing one for the first time and thinking, wow, that guy is actually talking to someone on the other end of the phone and there are no cables. It's not even in a phone box. In the mid-1990s, a story circulated about a yuppie, a young and upwardly mobile person, a yuppie who boarded a train talking loudly on his mobile phone. Everyone turned to look and were suitably impressed by the display of wealth and influence. But partway through the rail journey, an old man suffered a heart attack in the carriage. Someone turned to the yuppie and asked him to call an ambulance to meet them at the next station using his mobile phone. And after several moments of fumbling and awkwardness and embarrassment, he admitted that the phone was fake. It was a pretend phone. It looked like the real thing, but inside it was empty. He had only been talking to himself. He was doing it for the benefit of the audience, to make them think he was more impressive than he really was. Now, I don't know if that's a true story or an urban myth. It certainly could have happened back in the day. But true or false, it is a useful introduction to this section of the Sermon on the Mount that we just read, the first 18 verses of Matthew chapter 6. You see, in this section, Jesus turns his attention to our religious observance and he says, take great care that it is pure and true. Take great care that it is pure and true. And the reason he has to say this is that in every one of our hearts, not just some of us but all of us, in every one of our hearts is an impulse that wants to do things to impress people. We are such strange creatures We can catch a glimpse of the beauty of God's holiness and then we can find ourselves dreaming about how we could use it to make other people think we're great. We are sorely tempted to do good things, even religious duties, to impress people, to be noticed, to get their approval, for reputation, for glory. And Jesus warns his followers about this. Now, the summary verse for the whole chapter is verse 1. If you've closed your Bible, please open it again. Matthew 6, page 970, page 970. Here is this summary verse. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Be careful, Jesus says, you're going to have to take care about this. Now, the word it uses means to be in a state of alert, to be concerned about it, to be aware. It's a word that's used of danger, threats, bad people. Be be careful. 
Be careful not to practice your righteousness. Now, why, why is this so important? Because ultimately, that kind of, of religious practice, that kind of piety, is worthless. And those who are caught up in it are tragically self-deceived, like our man with his fake mobile phone. Like that, it looks like the real thing, but it is hollow and empty on the inside, and it leads to shame. There's a commentator called Tom Wright. He's a professor at uh, St. Andrew's University, former Bishop of Durham. He tells this story about something that happened when he lived in the Middle East. He said one day he was out, he was feeling a bit hungry, and so he bought a bar of chocolate at the local market. And arriving home, he sat down at his desk and unwrapped the chocolate and broke a piece off, and he was just about to put it in his mouth. But he, for some reason, looked down. And he said, I was glad I did it, because inside the chocolate, which looked fine on the outside, were hundreds of tiny, wriggling worms. On the outside, it looked like a nice bar of chocolate, but it was rotten to the core. And Jesus takes time here in his manifesto for how his people are to live to warn and teach us that even our religion, our religious practices can be like that bar of chocolate, can be like that. What he's teaching all through his Sermon on the Mount is that Christian righteousness must be unlimited. It must be allowed to penetrate beyond our actions and our words right into our heart, our mind, and our motivation, the reasons why we do what we do. And now in chapter 6, Jesus turns to our religious righteousness because Christianity is not just concerned with morality. We've thought in the last few weeks about murder and anger and lust and adultery and about truth and lies, and about generosity, about forgiveness. Christianity is not just concerned with morality, but also with religion. Now, I know we sometimes talk about religion in this church as a contrast to the true gospel. And it is true that in the New Testament, the religious people were the worst enemies of Jesus. They were. But religion itself is not bad. James chapter 1, verse 27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So religion itself isn't bad. Now, when Jesus was teaching about morality, he'd used a powerful contrast. He said, people are like this, but do not be like them. Don't do this. And he does the same thing here as he talks about our religious duties. What do we learn here? There are two kinds of religion. There are two kinds of righteousness. And there are two kinds of reward. Two kinds of religion. Two kinds of righteousness, two kinds of reward. Firstly, two kinds of religion. Jesus gives three examples of religion gone wrong. Giving, praying, and fasting. Now, these three things were the essential duties of the Jewish religion, the core duties. Three activities which God required of his people. And these three things, although they were the essence, weren't everything that they were required to do. They represent all the other righteous things that we might want to do in following God. But these three are great examples. And in each one of them, Jesus uses the same pattern. He shows how the the practice can be misused. And then he shows how we can be careful not to practice our righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. Two kinds of religion. One is for show, with an ostentatious display, and it has one eye on the audience. It is looking to impress. It wants other people to think well of me. The other is only concerned with what God thinks. 
This person's eye is fixed on God, and he or she loves and serves God for himself. In all three examples, Jesus draws a contrast. Religion that's done so that other people will see it, and religion that is done for God, who is unseen. Let's see what it looks like. Giving. Giving. It was a standard duty in the Old Testament that God's people should provide for the poor. In fact, Israel was an exemplary nation in this regard. The Old Testament made great and generous provision for the poor, and this continued on into Jesus' day, even though the Jews were now living under Roman rule. The Jewish people, by the mid-first century, had a well-organized system of poor relief that they ran through the synagogues, but it did rely on people making voluntary contributions putting their hand in their own pocket. And Jesus paints this comical picture. Here's someone who's going to give some money to the poor they've decided to give. So what do they do? They get some people to blow trumpets so that everyone knows what's coming. The trumpet makes this big announcement. Hey, everyone, I'm about to be really generous. And so the giver, striding through the crowds with his wallet in his hand, or his hand in his pocket, reaches forward to give this great act of generosity. And everyone sees. Now, we don't know if people really did this, or if Jesus exaggerating to make a point, but we do know what it means to blow your own trumpet, don't we? The point is clear. They make sure that people know they are giving. And the reason for this is there in verse 2, to be honored by others. To be honored. You see how perverse this is? Giving to the poor is a good thing, isn't it? Giving is a generous thing. People are in real need. You have a resource. Giving really helps them. That's a good thing, isn't it? But this hypocrite, according to Jesus, is really giving to himself. He's serving himself by his gift. Praying. Now again, prayer is a standard duty of biblical religion. The Jewish people of Jesus' time prayed at least three times a day, formal prayers, as well as prayers that they would offer just in their daily life and in private, quietly praying to God. Prayer is a privilege. Prayer is also a duty. We're commanded to pray. But how do the hypocrites pray? There it is in verse 5. Have a look there. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, to be seen by others. Now, we have to be clear what Jesus is getting at here. There's nothing wrong with standing up while you pray. Standing was the the standard posture for prayer in his time. And, of course, people were supposed to pray in the synagogue. That was the meeting place, like the church. And Jesus is not against people praying out on the streets or anywhere else. What he's getting at is the motive underneath the prayer. The key phrase is that they want to be seen by others. In other words, the real motive for their prayers in the synagogue or on the streets is to get noticed. They want other people to see how good they are, how holy they are, how spiritual. Aren't they great prayers? They pray so well. Wow. They want other people to be impressed by them. Now, interestingly, at this point, Jesus then draws a contrast with the non-Jewish people who he calls the pagans. They had their own religion. It was very different. They had many, many gods, not one. And people tended to try and use magic formulae and sort of incantations that were elaborate and repeat them over and over again to get the attention of the gods and to get what they wanted. The emphasis was was on quantity, not quality of prayer. 
And the prayers would often be babbling, a flow of meaningless noise without any intelligent thought going into it, and attempting to be heard because of the word count. Jesus says they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Now, this kind of prayer is also trying to get noticed by the gods. The assumption is I need to try and get their attention in order to get what I want. That's the opposite of Christian prayer. And Jesus, at this point, gives what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's a model prayer, a pattern for our praying that's so important, we're actually going to spend two weeks on it in a couple of weeks' time. So we're not going to do that today, but come back in a couple of weeks and we'll be thinking about the Lord's Prayer together. Giving, praying. Thirdly, fasting. Again, a standard duty of the Jewish faith. Everybody fasted. They fasted in connection with the Day of Atonement, and sometimes there'll be national fast days as well on special occasions. The Pharisees were very religious people. They fasted twice a week, and they made sure people knew about him. And we know that Jesus fasted. One time he fasted for 40 days. And we know that the apostles, his followers, the leadership that he installed, they also fasted at times in the book of Acts, times of special preparation, times when they needed God's blessing or direction in a special way. There's nothing wrong with fasting. But notice again what people do with it. Verse 16. Do not, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. In other words, when these guys were fasting, okay, they're skipping meals for a day or, or skipping lunch. They make sure everyone knows about it. They're going around with a long face, oh, looking as miserable as possible. What's the matter? Oh, don't mind me. I'm just fasting today. You know, they're bringing as much attention to themselves as they can. Giving, praying, fasting. That's one kind of religion. Did you notice a word that came up in all three examples? What does Jesus call them? Did you notice it? it begins with H. Hypocrites. You did notice it. Jesus is not pulling any punches. In his view, people who give, pray, and fast for the audience are hypocrites. Now, what does that mean? In the, the Greek language, the classical Greek language, this word was, was used of actors in the theater. Someone who played a part. They were pretending, playing a part. They were pretending to be someone or something that they were not. And so you might say, the outside and the inside of this person do not match up at all. A hypocrite is someone who is different on the outside than they are on the inside. And you know, what you are in private is what you really are. What you are in private is what you really are. So hypocritical religion is play-acting. It's a performance. It's driven and motivated by your ego. Now, there are different kinds of hypocrites. Some people pretend to do good, but they are consciously evil underneath. Others are puffed up by their own sense of importance and self-righteousness. They may just be very unaware of themselves. They're often very harsh toward other people and to other people's sins and failings. But there's a third kind of hypocrite, and it's the most dangerous kind because it's the most subtle. And they're in every church I've ever been in. These people have taught themselves into believing that at heart they are doing the right thing. I really am doing good. And when they give, the poor and the needy are touchingly grateful. 
And when they pray, people are moved and stirred by their words. They might even get the evangelical grunt. Mmm. Affirmation of a good prayer. Mmm. And everyone speaks with great appreciation of them. They're so good. But God is not deceived. At heart, they are doing it all for the applause of the crowd and for the grunts. And that is all they will get. That is one kind of religion. But there are two kinds in this passage, and the other way is the way of Jesus. Notice that Jesus' disciples are actually to do the same things. They also are supposed to give, pray, and fast. But the way they do it is radically different. So whereas the hypocrites are doing it in order to be seen by other people, Jesus' followers are to avoid any kind of show, avoid any kind of display like the plague. The key is to avoid showing off in our religion. Jesus unpacks it with some typically dramatic contrast. I just love the way he preaches. It's so vivid. He says, giving? Listen, when you give, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So the right hand, most people, is the action hand. I'm left-handed, so I have to do this. He says, your your right hand's giving. Put your left hand behind your back so it doesn't even see what's going on. In other words, it is so discreet. Your giving is so discreet that it should be a secret even from yourself. Now, you can't literally do this, can you? You will remember what you gave, probably, and you may have to keep a record of it for gift aid or something like that, or to tell your spouse. But the point is, forget about it as much as you can. Don't broadcast it. Don't even dwell on it. Don't sit there stroking your ego and thinking about how good you are for giving that money. Praying. Verse 6, Jesus says, When you pray, go into your most private room, close the door so no one can see, and pray to your Father who is there in secret. Your prayer life is not a show. It is a personal relationship with the unseen God. Now again, we've got to beware literalism. Jesus prayed in public. Jesus prayed in front of large groups. His disciples held prayer meetings. He doesn't mean that you can't pray in public. What he's getting at is our motive when we pray. Our motive. Jesus is saying, make sure you're not praying with one eye on the audience. Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century spoke about a pastor who prayed in a fashionable society church in Boston. And the report in the newspaper the next day described it as the finest prayer that was ever addressed to a Boston audience. Who are you praying to? Now, whenever we pray in public, whether it's up front or in a small group or even one-to-one, there's a temptation to pray up to the audience to make them think well of us, to pray in a way that gains their respect and approval, to be greater when we pray in public than we, when we pray at home on our knees. You've got to resist it. You've got to resist it. Fasting. Jesus says in verse 17, when you fast... Look normal. Don't go around unkempt, miserable looking, with ash on your head, beard unshaven, hair tangled, drawing attention to yourself. Look how unhappy I am, I'm fasting. No, 
Keep your fasting as private as possible. He says, just look like you're having a great day so that it will not be obvious to others what you are doing. What is the principle here? A hypocrite is someone who is different on the outside than they are on the inside. So be a person of integrity. A person whose religion is genuine and authentic. Not playing to the crowd. Not done for attention, but done for God alone. There are two kinds of religion. And that's because underlying them and driving them are two kinds of righteousness. Two kinds of righteousness. What is the motive underneath hypocritical religion? Notice how the same thing connects all three examples. I'm going to read these out. Verse 2, they do it to be honored. Verse 5, they do it to be seen by others. Verse 16, they do it to show other people that they are fasting. You see, they're doing their righteousness, but why are they doing it? For human approval. They're doing it for approval. This is an approach to life that is essentially insecure. At the heart, this person needs other people to think well of them. He or she needs their good approval, their opinion. The heart says, I have to get them to see that I am someone. I have to get them to see that I'm great. Because deep down, actually, I feel worthless. So all their behavior is driven by this insecure need for other people to think well of them. Now, how do you know if you're doing this? How do you react when you're snubbed or overlooked? As if you're not even worth noticing. How do you feel when people say unfair and unkind things about you or write them about you? Do you spend a lot of time thinking about how you present yourself, for example, on social media? Do you worry about how you come across? Do you worry about it too much? Are you over-concerned with how many friends you have on Facebook or how many followers you have on Twitter? Have you ever spent far too long dwelling on a photo? Which picture am I going to put out on the internet? Or the form of words I'm going to use to describe my life? What happens in your heart when you mess up and other people think badly of you? Can you just put it aside quickly? Or does it eat you alive? Does it, does it burn you inside? Does it haunt you for hours and hours or even days? Friends, a lot of us are driven by this insecure, insecure need for other people to think well of us. We can't bear to do anything wrong because it's like everything will fall apart. We want them to like us. We want them to think we're great. We want their approval. We need it. We want to have a good name. We want to be impressive. And this is toxic, this insecurity. It infects everything we do, including things that should be pure, like prayer and giving and Christian service. But there is another kind of righteousness. It underpins the motivation of Jesus' disciples, and it changes their attitude, and it's driven by something called the gospel. The gospel. Now, if you're not a Christian here and you're just here, you're maybe a skeptical person, can I ask you to tune in here? I want to talk to you about the heart of what we believe. The gospel is a news report, it's a news story. It announces that God has done a great thing in world history, 
And some, this thing that he's done and it changes the course of history, the course of the world, and it can change and reform every heart. This gospel is a message about the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. It says that although we were God's enemies, Jesus Christ came to be one of us to live the life that we should have lived. And although we were sinners and rebels against God, wicked people deserving God's anger and punishment, Jesus willingly laid down his life for us. He chose the cross. He, bought, he took the darkest path. He bore in his own body on the cross the suffering that was due to us. And he did it so that we could be accepted and approved of by God. And he rose from the dead. He was appointed God's special king, the Messiah, ruler of the universe. And he reigns in power at God's right hand, the place of strength, gathering in his people from every conceivable language group, ethnic group, nation, tribe, until a vast, vast multitude of millions and millions of people that no one can count are gathered into his church. Now, this is the gospel. Here's, here's one sentence summary. You're more wicked and sinful than you ever realized and more loved and accepted than you ever imagined. You're more wicked and sinful than you ever realized and more loved and accepted than you ever imagined because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, it says, the eyes of the most important person in the universe can be on you and those eyes can be full of love and approval. Because of Jesus, you can become a child of God and call him Father. And you know, a child may be disobedient, but you never sack a child like an employee. They're in the family. So here is another basis for life. Another kind of righteousness. It's the opposite of the insecurity that drives the hypocrites. It's absolutely secure because Jesus has bought and paid for it. It gives us absolute confidence in life because we know that we're already accepted by God. He already loves you. doesn't matter what you do. He already knows that already. Therefore, you're free to give away your money generously because your heavenly Father's going to provide for you. He's got a pretty big bank account. Therefore, we're stirred to pray in private because prayer is not a vending machine to get stuff out of an unwilling God, but a relationship that's alive with a father who wants to hear from us and stoops to listen to our lisping prayers. And therefore, we're free to devote our lives to God in special ways because we know how much Jesus gave for us and we're moved by gratitude. Now, this is the disciples' righteousness. It's a gift. Do you want it? You can't earn it. You have to receive it. It says that this forgiveness is received by grace, undeserved kindness, and you get it through faith, trust in Christ. There are two kinds of religion, two kinds of righteousness. Finally, let me show very briefly there are two kinds of reward. Two kinds of reward. Now, we might feel a little bit uncomfortable at this point. Reward? Reward for giving and praying and fasting? Sounds a little bit mercenary, doesn't it? But Jesus isn't embarrassed by language of reward. He says, yep, there's two kinds of payment here. The first is the reward of the hypocritical religion. And there it is in verse 2, 5, and 16. In fact, it's the same words 
in each case. They have received their reward in full. They got it. So what is it? Well, they were doing their religion for a round of applause, and that's what they got. That's all. Nothing more. They were working for the applause of the fickle crowd and its attention, and that's what they got. A hand clap. Was it worth it? I don't think so. The next minute, the crowd are bored, looking around for the next sad entertainer. It's a shallow reward. It's actually worthless. And the tragic part is, all their giving, all their prayers, all their efforts, all their fasting is meaningless before the one person who counts, God the Father. There is no reward from him because they've had it in full from people. So what about Jesus' disciples? Interesting, they too are promised a reward. Verses 4, 6, and 18, he says, uh, for example, verse 4, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 6, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 18, your father, you guessed it, same thing again. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So what is it? What's this reward? Would you like to know what it is? Jesus doesn't tell us. <laughs> but the clue, I think, is in the word father. The reward is a future thing, and it's connected to knowing the father. C.S. Lewis once spoke on this topic in a sermon in 1942. It was published later as, a, as a, an, a, a, an essay or a sermon called The Weight of Glory. He says this. It helps us give a bit of context. We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of reward. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it. And it is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. So, money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he is not mercenary for desiring it. See what he's saying? There's certain kinds of reward that are completely linked to the thing you're doing, the thing you desire. And if in your prayers and your giving and your devotion to God, you're really desiring God, then your reward will be to get him in ways that are beyond our imagination in this life. The proper reward for giving to the poor is to live in a world where poverty is over. God promises that. The proper reward for prayer is to see the one we pray to face to face. God promises that. The proper reward for fasting is to know God's blessing and direction. He promises it. And all these things are given to us and much, much more in Jesus' kingdom where we will see him face to face. And because of that, we will be like him when he makes all things new. Two kinds of religion, two kinds of righteousness, two kinds of reward. One of them is here and now and gone in a moment. The other one lasts forever. So what about us? How does this apply to Grace Church? I've been wrestling with this question all week. 
And I found it hard to answer. I want to point out three things. I'm not having a go at anyone here other than myself. The first is our Christian service. I, I don't see many people at Grace Church fasting and disfiguring their faces so that everyone knows about it. In fact, I don't know if I've ever known anyone at this church who fasts. Maybe there's a lesson for us there. I haven't really seen anybody blowing a trumpet when they were going to put some money in that wooden box or you know, help someone out who was struggling. I, I've never seen anyone do that. But what about our, our, our Christian service? So as a church, we're quite proud, and in some ways rightly so, about how everyone's uh, uh, serving. We're, we, we try and get as much congregation to, to serve together and volunteer as much as we can. Uh, do we do it, our service, whatever it is, for God or to make other people think well of us? And one way you might know if your heart's been corrupted on this is if you like to talk about how tired you are and how much you're doing and how much you're serving. And I'm not even on the rotor, you know. I just came and did it because they needed me. And that sort of thing is a self-serving language that is basically doing it for the approval of men and women. Christian service. Secondly, doing things at the front. You notice how you're all up there. It's quite intimidating looking at a big tiered load of seats and there's some people who do things at the front now somebody pointed out uh, somebody whose job was to try and get volunteers to help at the church they said to me why is it so much easier to get people to do things at the front than to do anonymous service roles why is it that some people are very quick to want to be in the music group but not so quick to be in the catering or the clean-up team? Why is it that people want to be out here? Because I think you get more eyes on you if you're at the front. So if you're a person who is longing to be seen, to be doing things in public, have a look at your heart. Because those of us who do things at the front will be judged seriously by God on this. And let me just say to anybody who does lead, preach, play, talk, read, do anything in public in the church, we will always be tempted to do it for the praise of people. We will always be tempted on that. That's why he says take care. Be really careful about it. Many years ago, I was in a church in South London. There was, we, we have th three or four bands here. They circulate uh, around. But we, we had one couple who were these amazing musicians. The wife was a concert pianist and the husband was a very able guitarist and a wonderful singer. And they, they led the whole music ministry at that church, big church in London. And at one point, the man stepped down. He said, I'm not playing again for a while. Of course, we were all horrified. What are we going to do? Why, why are you saying this? He said, I, I've started doing it for the wrong reasons. I've started doing it so that people will look at me. And I've got to, I got to purge that. So he did. And when he dealt with it, he came back. This uh, actually affects everybody who leads. So if you lead a life group, right? If you pray in a prayer meeting, if you go to the Chalton prayer meeting tonight, which is the Grace Church prayer meeting for Chalton, are you going to pray in such a way that your Heavenly Father hears and is glad? Or are you praying in such a way? Are you praying like you never pray at home? You're praying up a storm. 
Or are you praying out of the overflow of what you're really like? What you are in private is what you really are. Our Christian service, doing things at the front. And thirdly, our image. Has there ever been a generation in history where people were so aware of their own image? And it was said in the 16th century or thereabouts that for the first time in history, mirrors became available and people had them in their home. So you could actually have a mirror. You think about it, no one ever had mirrors before then. Someone very wealthy might have had a piece of metal that was sort of beaten, just about see your reflection. But at a certain time in history, we got mirrors, and that made us much more self-conscious as human beings. What about now? Wow. You can get an audience of hundreds of thousands of people following you on the Internet. How conscious we are of our image. Do you present something out there to make people think well of you that is not true in here? Be very careful, says Jesus. So what can we do practically, just in closing, to take care? I want to suggest that we need to have humor, humility, and a holy love for God. Humor, humility, and a holy love for God. Humor, we've got to learn to laugh at ourselves, haven't we? It's why Jesus uses this humor. The person blowing the trumpet, the person who uh, is praying on a street corner like this, everyone can see. The person who is fasting and he's looking absolutely miserable, he's, he's making us see us, how stupid we are and laugh at ourselves. Learn to laugh at yourself. Jesus takes that pin and he does it to puncture our ego and bring us to our senses. How can we learn to be humble? Humility is not pretending to be someone other than I am. Humility is acknowledging the truth of who and what we are. Uh, an archbishop in the Church of England, Michael Ramsey, wrote some sermons that were written for young men on the, the night before they were ordained into ministry in the Church of England. He wrote uh, a, a wonderful sermon. It was published and called Divine Humility. And I want to close with these words. I think there's some wisdom here for us. Thank God, often and always, thank God carefully and wonderingly for your continuing privileges and for every experience of God's goodness. Thankfulness is a soil in which pride does not easily grow. Be thankful. Secondly, take care about the confession of your sins. Be sure to criticize yourself in God's presence. That is your self-examination. And put yourself under the divine criticism. That is your confession. Thirdly, be ready to accept humiliations. They can hurt terribly, but they help you to be humble. Ever been humiliated? There can be trivial humiliations. Accept them. There can be the bigger humiliations. All these can be so many chances to be a little bit nearer to our humble and crucified Lord. Fourthly, do not worry about status. There's only one status that our Lord bids us to be concerned with, and that is the status of nearness to him. Fifthly, use your sense of humor. Laugh about things. Laugh at the absurdities of life. Laugh about yourself and about your own absurdity. We are all of us infinitesimally small and ludicrous creatures 
in God's universe, you have to be serious, of course, but never be solemn. Because if you are solemn about anything, there is a risk of becoming solemn about yourself. Jesus speaks to us. Be careful, brothers and sisters, not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. For if you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts. They are so many as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And help us to be those who practice our righteousness only because your eye is upon us and because we love you. Amen.